Hey! Silence starting now. Brought to you by Mario. <laughs> well, that wasn't very silent, was it? <laughs> You're the one who said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to imitate your last Spooky Torch introduction. <laughs> Which was, again, not Mario. <laughs> it kind of sounded like Mario. It did not. Hello and welcome to Book Retorts. I'm Sam. I'm Danielle. And this is the podcast about showing your weird media finds with your friends. Guess what, Danielle? I'm your friend? Well, that's one of many things, but also, <laughs> we are now out of Spook Retorts, which means you're safe. No more spooky things. You're such a liar. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I have brought you more Hyperion. Spook Retorts this year is all year long for you, because it's Hyperion pretty much for the rest of our freaking lives. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, but get excited. I have a great episode for you today, Daniel. I think it's all kicking off, but... Before we get to that, I believe you should tell us what happened last time so we can get prepared for all the twists and turns of this episode. Yeah. So about that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know, Danielle. The memory is lacking. But it's we been a very a long two weeks. I, how, how does it start? <laughs> give me a clue. All right. It starts with the body of Hoyt being brought back oh. to the others. Okay. So Hoyt, Father Hoyt, with the little uh, things on him, the crosses, the cruciforms. The cruciforms. Yes. He okay. He he ran into DJ Shrike, and the party was. I did not, not fun. enjoy the beats he dropped. <laughs> did not enjoy the music or the kittens, and he is on his deathbed, and he ends up being rescued no. by the no. <laughs> He's almost dead though. He's almost dead, and he ultimately does die. Well, your spoilers, we hadn't gotten that far yet. Oh, we're about to, but point is, Danielle, rescued is a strong word. (laughs) Okay, well, yeah, but they show up to, like, hopefully help him out. They want to take him back to the ship to Mm -hmm. get a medical care. Whose ship? uh, The consoles? Yeah. Okay. And Mina bars them from it. No ship for them. Do you remember who Mina is? She's the CEO of the world. You don't want to say the word hegemony, do you? Hegemony. I can remember the word, I'll be honest. <laughs> yeah, so CEO of hegemony, Mina Gladstone, very important. Yeah, but she says, no, you can't go back on your ship because you might run away. And you can't do that. Na-na-na-na-na. Those exact words, verbatim. <laughs> so they're stuck on a planet Hyperion, the island yes, the of island. Hyperion. <laughs> you remember all the bits. You don't remember the actual story. <laughs> How else do you want me to remember the story, Sam? If I don't remember the bits, I'm not going to remember the story. Fair. Uh, so they think that uh, the Shrike might have granted Hoyt his wish. They don't know for sure. Well, that's later. So you know, that's what the pilgrims are up to. And then back in Mina Gladstone's office, she's talking to Severn. Sure. Who was relaying what has happened in his dreams because he dreams the events of the yeah. pilgrims. Right. Okay, just make sure we you remember need, that. We need that from the first one. <laughs> I, don't, I never take anything for granted, Danielle, with, with yeah, what's going he's on. Like, he's a, also a Keats Jr., so he has he can uh, send his consciousness through the other Keats Jr. slash baby Keats, and he There's can see some what's happening. they have, even yes. though the other Keats does not exist in the Technocore the way this Keats does. 
Right. There's a plethora of keats. <laughs> keats everywhere, all the way down. I think we went over <laughs> finding your inner keats in the last episode. We did. I, in fact, used it for a quote for our accounts. Okay, great. You're well, welcome. <laughs> thank you. So he gets upset. Gladstone won't send the ship back to save the other pilgrims. And CEO's like, no, Hoyt got his wish granted. His wish was to die. Right. But he has the cruciforms on him. But so is he really dead? Who knows? Oh, Danielle, we're going to get into that hard this episode. <laughs> oh, yay. And that night he doesn't, he refuses to dream because he doesn't want to give. That's the very end of the Mina, part. anything. Danielle. I know. It's like the very end of the episode. <laughs> I was just jumping ahead to his. Okay. Do you remember what happens next? Uh, so Mina offers Severin the opportunity to visit Hyperion. Yeah. Which he decides he's going to do. And they run into whom on the surface? Mm-hmm. Rachel's one-time lover. Oh, yeah. God, this plot was stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel's the baby is the baby. Yep, they ran into Emilio. Just Um, Emilio, not Emilio. I didn't mean to say Emilio. It was like a little guttural stop before the M. Okay, well, then Um, we'll just take it again. (laughs) (laughs) They run into Emilio. Emilio Arundes. Right, who is the previous uh, lover of baby Rachel when she was not a baby. Not a baby, be clear. (laughs) Clear. And he's still in love with her. So sad, even though he has a wife and kids. Yeah, which is sadder for them. (laughs) But he's there. He wants to help because he used to study, has studied the time tombs. And so he's trying to get back into the time tombs, but they won't let him because they don't want him to get in the way of the travelers. The pilgrims, yes. Right. Uh, All right. That's pretty much all that happened on that trip. No wonder why I couldn't remember it. That was dumb. (laughs) It was like plotless. I mean, what's establishing is, one, that Melia was still around, which he may come back later. I don't remember. Uh, um, <laughs> it also sort of is an opportunity for Melio to, in case you haven't picked up on it already, explain about the time tombs and how they're traveling backwards in time. And now they're coming to phase with our time, which is what they mean by How opening. could you not have figured that out by this book? This section of this book. Because this book is not always exactly explicit. Like, I condense things and make it explicit for you, Danielle, to make it clear. But the book tends to, like, couch things often in metaphor or... I'm going to assume that maybe you wouldn't have picked that up if you were reading it. I'm saying it'd be unlikely that you haven't. It's redundant a lot. I want to make sure you get this. Okay, well, I got it. So let's move on. All right. The next thing that happens is Kassad. Yes. No? Does ring any bells? No, Kassad. He's the warrior guy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But what's happening to him? Oh, he was, didn't he get into a fight with What's-Her-Face, yes. Monid, Monida, Moneda, and he was looking for her, and they were trying to reunite with the pilgrims. Like, he got separated from the pilgrims, and I was trying oh, to reunite with them. Oh, Danielle, not quite. So, when the pilgrims went to go try to reach the consul ship, he went off to go find Monida, Moneda. Right. And they get into a shooting match. Right. Where she's trying to snipe him from the top of the crystal monolith, and he's just returning fire. And he gets his butt kicked a little bit, and then... And then he yells her name. He yells her name and runs across the valley floor to the crystal monolith and cl- starts climbing the stairs to go meet her. Okay. Weirdo. Okay. So I'm just recapping this myself then, am I? <laughs> I said that he got into a fight with Monita Moneta. What more did you want from me? 
any That's, details and they got separated from the pilgrims i literally said what you just you said, said. They were trying to find and reunite the pilgrims they were not they did not care at all about the pilgrims okay no i just meant that like weren't they trying originally to get to get like they separated so he could go off and fight but weren't they planning to reunite at some point i mean yeah he said i'll meet up with you guys later yeah. obviously an empty promise okay well how am i supposed to know that i don't know how zader <laughs> thought <laughs> all right all right so that scene's done he's like obsessed with her well we're not there yet <laughs> What's next, Danielle? There's more. Why am I telling the story? Because it's your recap. This is how you, we do oh, this. You said that, that was all the story. I thought that we that were done with recapping. That was that scene I said. That was that scene. Oh, gosh. I don't know what happens after that, Sam. Do you remember the dinner in treetops? I mean, I remember treetops from Jonathan Treetops. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. I'm going to tell this whole story twice again, aren't I? All right. Uh, Severn and Gladstone, they go to a big fancy dinner at Treetops, which is a restaurant And the art guy is there who does weird art. Yes, the weird action artist who is kind of a jerk is there. Mm-hmm. Also, Tyrena Wingreen Fief is there. Sure. The editor The one-time publisher of Barcelona, yeah, who's like, we're going to publish his book now that he's dead. And they all think he's dead, but he's not. Well, yeah. Uh, and there's a bunch of philosophical conversation about like the meaning of humanity and what the goals of the humanity are and the technocore are. And it's all about the, the essential themes of the book, which I guess aren't important to you. <laughs> not that important, <laughs> plot-wise. <laughs> Just doing a summarizing of a plot. Listen to the episode if you want the themes. <laughs> Okay, great. So, do you remember what happened after the dinner? No. I already told you I don't remember anything that happens in the story. Do you remember the briefing that they get into with Severin goes to the briefing of the current state of the war with the ousters? And it's not going well. It is not the, going well. Because the the guy that's in charge is like, remember how we were supposed to totally win because we had planned really poorly to begin with, but then we were like, this plan is way better, we swear, and then now it's not actually as good as we thought it was, oh, no, and we're you, in you, trouble. You skipped one step ahead, Danielle. They had the one plan, which is not going well, so now they have a new plan, which is to reinforce oh that hasn't the gone plan. badly yet okay well spoiler it goes badly in the future <laughs> <laughs> we can all predict that then that was obvious from the start <laughs> so the, the guy in charge of the army is like okay we grossly underestimated everything but this plan we swear we're not grossly underestimating everything again even though we still don't have more information than we had before yeah we need 200 ships which is a third of our fleet if we commit that to hyperion along with most of our ground troops we should have it all wrapped up within a week Right. And they're like, well, what if this is like some kind of ploy by the ousters to like take over and they know that we're going to be short on firepower in this other sector. And they're like, no, it's totally fine. I'm sure that's not going to be an issue. Yeah. We've been tracking the hawking driveways of all the ouster swarms. They're decades away from the hegemony or at least years away. We'd have plenty of warning. It's totally fine. We can always redeploy our ships here. We have a 99.96% confidence interval that we're going to win this in a week. But we've got that information from the Technicore who's trying to kill us. You know, the Technicore, which may or may not be a hostility that they're not aware of. Like, I think only only Mina really has a lot of animosity towards the Technicore. Right. But Mina doesn't really care about any of this. So she's like, yep, go ahead. Be free, little ones. She has her own plan, which this is all part of, which we are not quite privy to yet. Exactly. Also, I just want to point out that there is a junior officer at this meeting who was mentioned, Commander Lee, who was asked to give his opinion. He's like, this is all very stupid. I think this is a bad idea. And he's immediately shut down by the senior brass and promptly demoted or like, you know, punished by being put on some backwater assignment. Is he important? He comes back. 
Oh, okay. Well. (laughs) Which is why I brought him up. If he didn't, I would not have brought him up. Again, I have no idea what comes back and what doesn't. So I have to tell you everything, Danielle. (laughs) All right. So in the end, Severn, after the meeting, talks with Mina. He is distraught. He sees humanity with the same disdain that Gulliver did after his encounter with the Winhams and -hmm. resolves to take a bunch of sleeping pills so he doesn't dream and does that despite Mina Gladstone. Suck it, Mina. All right. That was the end of part one. Well, I'm glad I could tell it to you twice. (laughs) Filled in some gaps. <laughs> you, you did. Not one of your better ones, I'll be honest. You've done better. I don't know, Sam. I, I guess maybe editing it makes it not stick my brain as much as just listening to it. <laughs> I don't know how that's possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it gets worse, everybody. I edited that episode. <laughs> <laughs> and she did a very good job, but apparently the retainees, she did so focus on editing, everything else about the episode just went out of her head. <laughs> I genuinely didn't remember it. I watched it from my brain. Editing was so dramatic. All right. So let's get into part three of the Fall of Hyperion. Part three of how many? We'll find out. (laughs) 12,652,000. No. (laughs) This is definitely going to be, this is a longer and at least a denser book. So there's probably going to be a bit more episodes in this than the previous book. I think you should just do the bare minimum summary, and then we can just fill in the gap. That's going to take so much <laughs> longer. So we work to go back and be like, okay, that thing that I skipped, I have to go back and tell you a hundred pages though. of- Hilarious, <laughs> Trying to guess what's important in this book would be funny. It would be absolutely insane, Danielle. Like, you kept asking me repeatedly, is this important? Is this important? I'm like, I don't know. And then, yeah, it turns out most of that's important. <laughs> All right. Also, before we get into this, I do want to put a brief trigger warning out there that there is some mention of rape and sexual assault in this part of the book. So if that's a trigger for you, I'll let you know when we get to that part. You might want to skip it. Sounds good. All right. So part three, we are with Bron Lamia waking up from a fitful sleep, still in the Sphinx, though the console was no longer inside and the rest of the pilgrims are. Sans Kassad, who has disappeared. Right. Because he's off with Monita Moneta. Yes. She grabs her pistol and heads outside into the morning light, the storm having passed in the night. The consul is sitting on a rock, smoking a pipe because, I don't know, classy? Because <laughs> it's the consul. He says there's been no sign of Kassad, and they both observe the severely damaged crystal monolith in the distance. But even though it has been severely damaged, there still appears to be no ground-level entrance into the structure. The consul still has been unable to get the ship to come to them, and when pressed by Braun if he'd leave, he simply shrugs. He says he mostly wishes the others, like Saul, would go to protect themselves. So, do they know that Mina has... I can't remember. Made it yeah, so, so she sent a message saying, come. hey, I can't let you guys have the ship. Right. You might leave. Fatline squirts. Fatline squirts. Gordon, that fat line everywhere you can go. <laughs> the only thing I remember from this whole book. <laughs> from part one, you were <laughs> latched on to the term fatline squirt, which to be fair is hilarious and you have not let go since. <laughs> you should be proud of me for remembering literally anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. So Saul appears and suggests they all have breakfast, but they're interrupted by a terrified shout from Martin. They rush in to find him crouched over Hoyt's body. Only it no longer looks like Hoyt, the face having transformed from a young man to a man in his 60s. The consul immediately recognizes him as the face of Father Paul Duray. Has he seen the face of Paul Duray? Yeah, he's seen like uh, photos of all the other pilgrims, including he did some research and, and saw Father Paul Duray as well. Okay. Uh, not in person, but he saw a photograph or a hologram, whatever they use in this universe for photographs. So is, um, what's his face, Hoyt still there too, or just Paul Duray? Just, like, the body of Hoyt now appears to be the body of Paul Duray. Hmm, mysterious. And the cruciform that was on Hoyt's back has migrated to the chest alongside the other one. 
So they're all surprised at the speed with which DeRay has come back. And they're like, well, maybe the first time you regenerate is faster because it didn't take three days like everyone expected. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the what was once Hoyt's eyes opened his eyes. It is DeRay. He's awake. He's alive. Yay, we get a new character. Kind of. I mean, he usually <laughs> replaces the other character. <laughs> they probe him a bit and he's like, oh, I remember everything up until the moment I died on the Tesla tree. And they're like, well, you briefly defeated the parasite. Like, you had done it. But the Bakura then put that parasite onto Hoyt and sort of undid all your success. So, sorry, you <laughs> suffered for nothing. Bummer. <laughs> Major bummer. They suspect that since Hoyt didn't return to the valley where the Bakura lived and gain enough mass so the cruciform could recreate both people, only one of them was made. And DeRay says the parasite has infinite patience, resurrecting one host for generations if necessary until they can both find suitable hosts. Why did Dre win out instead of Hoyt? Plot? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Just curious if it gave us a reason. Maybe it was like the, the other crucial one was like, I've been doing this for a while, guys. It's your turn. <laughs> to accurate. <laughs> Pretty much like a tag team. While they talk, Braun is immediately aware of the magnetism of his personality and has to remind herself that Paul DeRay no. is a Catholic who remains celibate. <laughs> Don't do it, Bron. You just ha- you have baby Keats inside of you. She's not actually like really attracted to him. She's just like, oh, this guy has a magnetism about him. He's very charismatic, and that he could get it if he wanted, basically. <laughs> so the console decides to lend Duray his com log, where he took notes on all the pilgrim stories so that Duray can catch up. Because boy, does he not want to tell all those stories again. That's fair. Braun offers to walk back to keep Kronos to retrieve some food and water since they're running low. But first they decide to search the valley and the tombs for Kassad. Why aren't they staying in the keep? Because it's like hours and hours away from the tombs. And they don't want to move? Well, they don't have to like go back and forth. Like the whole point of the pilgrimage is to be in the valley with the time tombs. Okay, got it. That's where go the, on. That's where the uh, strike is. All right, so surprise, they do not find Kassad. Shocking. I know. Those all points out that if parts of the tombs are really out of phase with their time, just like Melio Rundes hypothesizes, then Kassad could have been right there next to them, just out of phase, and they wouldn't have noticed. That's true, but he's not. Well, they don't know that. They have no idea, no <laughs> anything. <laughs> but we know. So they speculate yeah, this will be the pattern, that each of them vanishing one by one until the last person's left who gets their wish granted. And then Martin asks DeRay what he'd wish for, and DeRay responds that he'd want humanity to be free of, quote, the scourge of those twin obscenities, the war and the strike. Which I guess is a nice thought, kind of feels like a kid who's like, what do you want for Christmas? Like, I want world peace. Okay, so his plan is to ask the strike to not be the strike. Basically. <laughs> Can we talk about how that probably won't work? <laughs> hey, hey, Mr. Strike, could you just, like, go away forever? Thanks. It's like asking the genie for more wishes. <laughs> <laughs> it does feel very, like, cutesy. After they search, Braun decides to set off for the keep, and Martin offers to go with her. And they're all like, well, is that a good idea? You two don't get along very well. But like, it'd be fine. It's fine. Don't worry about it. So, we cut to 12 hours earlier as Kassad stepped onto the highest level of the crystal monolith, where Moneta Monita waited there for him, decked out in her quicksilver skin suit. What a weird relationship. Oh, Danielle, it's about to get weirder. <laughs> I'm going to tell you right now, this is the section which contains what might be considered a sexual assault. It gets weird. Okay. The silver around her face and head retreats, and she's now you know, visible to Kassad. She, he can see her face, and he raises his weapon to her. She asks him, hey, who are you? And before he responds, she says, oh, wait, I know. You're the one the Lord of Pain has promised. What? Yeah. 
Nasala is all like, you don't remember me? And she's like, nah, but the Lord of Pain promised me a warrior. We were destined to meet. So she doesn't remember the past events? Well, Kasala replies that they met long ago. And Munia's like, I have no memory of long ago. We move in opposite directions along the general flow of time. So they're just destined to constantly be together? Well, they're destined to meet, but her past is his future and right, vice right, versa. Right, right, Vaguely recall that. Yeah, so she, this is like their first meeting for her and their last meeting for him, maybe? I don't know. Like, it doesn't quite make sense. Uh-huh. <laughs> Anyway, Kassad says he knows her as Monita and then remembers her betrayal when she became the Shrike or let it take her place when they were mid-sex, turning their act of love into an obscenity, as he calls it. Okay. To be fair, I'm not. Uh, that would be pretty disturbing. I'm not sure I would be like, oh, you betrayed me. Curses. They weren't even in like a real relationship, as far it's as I can really tell. It's hard to explain. <laughs> like... They had something going on, Danielle. I don't know what it is, but in his mind, it's a betrayal. He's all okay. kind of messed up in the head. <laughs> Poor Kassad. He then tries to shoot her, but his gun doesn't work in the crystal monolith for reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Mundia's like, that gun won't work in here. Sorry, buddy. And he's like, all right. And then Mundia's like, why do you want to kill me? Kassad does not answer, but instead attacks her in hand-to-hand combat. He tackles her, and they topple off the ledge down 10 meters to the floor below. Does he only want to kill her because she betrayed him? Yeah, he wants to kill her in the Shrike. He's obsessed with it. Okay. Well, aren't they all obsessed with the Shrike? Something. In different ways, yes. <laughs> So after they land on the ground, she like easily wails on him, but that he is no match for her in her magic skin suit. And she tells him, whatever happened in my future, your past, it was not I who changed. I am not the Lord of Pain. But before she finishes, Kassad tries to like karate chop her head off using his <laughs> magic body armor. Uh-huh. It doesn't work. He like hits her and immediately his blow just stops dead and has no effect on her. I have a real question. So if this is her first time meeting him, theoretically, and the last time was when she turned into Lady Shrike, the like, he can he kill her now? Does that dissolve his future with his his past, her future? I have no clue how the time in this book works. You're asking me if he kills her now before she and her future meets him, but it's still his past. I mean, I would argue that he can't kill her now because we know he doesn't kill her. Otherwise, he would not have Right, met. exactly. Like, there's no way to kill her now because then he wouldn't have Lady Shrike later. Well, I, I wouldn't say there's no way that he could kill her. It's obvious that he doesn't succeed. Like, it is right. already set out. Like, destiny, I don't know, fate, however you want to call it. That's what I mean by can't, is that it's already destined that well, he, she he, has a future with him and he had a past with her. He should know that he fails, basically, at this point. Right, because exactly. if he did succeed, she wouldn't have met, we'd have a paradox. <laughs> Yeah, okay, well, continue on. He tries to chop her head off, doesn't work, and she stops holding back. She throws him around, and she tears his armor off, eventually lifting and shaking the now naked man by his shoulders, telling him, we don't have to be enemies, before tossing him down and saying, you love war, Kassad, before straddling him, and very much against his will at the moment, starting to have sex with him. So he was naked underneath his suit? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> the suit is like all you need. It's the magic body armor that like, okay. takes care of you. It does everything. If you're I know, sure I saw that under- coming. Yeah, right? <laughs> Despite resisting at first, Kassad becomes into it by the end, which, I don't know, doesn't feel great. No, but unsurprising given his history with her. Yeah, exactly. Later, after they finish, they walk together through the shattered crystal monolith, and Monita once again touches Kassab with a feral and a Taurus to grant him his skin suit. Oh, yeah, it's Taurus. <laughs> yeah. They're back, Danielle. I told you everything from the previous book is coming back, <laughs> even the vocabulary. 
So Kassad asks, what now? And Monita Moneta tells him the Lord of Pain awaits, and that she is his consort and his nemesis, his keeper. She doesn't come from the future with the Shrike. Instead, she was taken from her time to travel back in time with the Shrike. And before Kassad can ask who she was before she did all that, the Shrike appears. It grabs Kassad's arm in its bladed hand and gestures, and a portal opens, filling the room with a violet light. Monita Moneta steps through, and the Shrike, leading Kassad by the arm, steps in after. Uh-oh. Bye, Kassad. Bye! We barely knew you. <laughs> <laughs> Have fun! Enjoy your trip with the Shrike. Just what you wanted to meet the Shrike. It'll be great. <laughs> what did he want to wish from the Shrike? He doesn't want the wish. He wants to kill it. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Wish it did. He wants to wish that he can kill it, I guess. Which is, again, seems like a genie wish that would not be granted. (laughs) Cut to CEO Gladstone. She can't sleep, so she decides to take a walk through all the worlds, which she does from time to time. Yeah, as one does. She has her own personal forecaster, so she can basically teleport to any planet in the web. Does she go to that one that's like the bathroom in the middle of the lake? You mean, well, that's that's Mayor Infinitus, and that's where... (laughs) That's where Martin had his bathroom, but there's more than just bathrooms on that planet, Daniel. It's not a Are you planet sure? of bathrooms. <laughs> yes. But no, she decides to visit all the home worlds of each of the pilgrims. So she opens her personal forecaster and first goes to Patchum, home of Hoyt and Paul DeRay, and the now small cult known as Catholicism. She contemplates that while she loves the web, loves the 150 billion people that comprise it, she loves it enough to know that she must help in destroying it. Is she going to destroy Catholicism? No. Actually, very much no, if I remember correctly. <laughs> you can't it's weird, tell me that sure. Oh, boy. <laughs> she goes to Maui Covenant and contemplates the extinction of the dolphins from the war after Ceres' rebellion Aww. and from a mysterious mass suicide they carried out. The dolphins carried out? Yeah. Okay. Dolphins all decided to commit a mass suicide, which was very weird. <laughs> yes, it would be. <laughs> uh, she contemplates how the Gemini pollutes the worlds they take over, reducing their ecologies to husks that they keep alive artificially, sort of like zombie ecologies, mm-hmm. imitations of the ones of vibrant ecosystems. Yes, the Gemini's great. We've got that. Yeah, no, she's very much doing this to like give us a perspective into Mina's thoughts. She thinks about the council and how she had wagered everything on having him betray not only her, but the ousters as well, and opening the time tombs. Her aide, Hunt, had been instrumental in helping her plan and orchestrate, placing the council in contact with the ousters, leading to the events of the betrayal. She contemplates that as big as that betrayal had been, hers would be worse, and she was ready to do it to save humanity. Do it. Just do it, Mina. She then goes to Lucis and sees the Strike Temple boarded up, the bishop and the acolytes having fled from angry mobs. She travels down to the depths of the world thinking about Braun, but more importantly her father, Byron, who was a senator with her, dedicated to moving humankind out from under the bondage the AIs had imposed over five centuries. He had been the one who first proposed a bill to bring Hyperion into the web and had been killed for it, possibly by the core or possibly by elements in the hegemony wanting to maintain the status quo for their own power. Okay. Basically, we're getting a big exposition dump from Mina through this chapter here. Yes, I've noticed. <laughs> Again, I don't know how much of this is going to be relevant, so I'm giving you it everything. I would hope some of that seems relevant. Oh, okay. This is great. So I'm only going to mention this because I love the name. She hears some music, which she identifies as nihil music, as in nihilistic music. And uh-huh. what a name. <laughs> what does it sound like? Uh, screeches. That's all it says. Screeches <laughs> of nihil music. <laughs> it's music that doesn't want to exist. I don't know. <laughs> or thinks existence is pointless. It's hard to really figure it out. 
So as she walks the tunnels of Lucis, she's confronted by five youths transformed by Ernest into mostly bestial creatures. They threaten her, but she pulls herself up and tells them firmly to go away. And they do. They just leave her alone. <laughs> I'd leave Mina alone, too. <laughs> no, yeah. She's like, I am not to be trifled with. I'm like, all right, works for me. <laughs> not today, Satan. Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> not today, bestial creatures. Used to be humans. Not today. She then goes to Barnard's world, and she contemplates the scholarly works of Saul and the Abrahamic sacrifice that he wrote about in his books. That humanity has come to the point of refusing any sacrifice, quote, any relationship with God except one of mutual respect, and the multiple deaths of God and the need for a divine resurrection, now that humankind had constructed its own God and released it on the universe. Which I, I believe she means the Technocore. I love Dan Simmons, like, very introspective nonsense on religion. <laughs> no, yeah. Danielle, oh boy. <laughs> She contemplates reversing course, stopping the war, but thinks, no, it will go as planned into the wild waters of chaos where even the Technocore predictors would be blind. So her plan is just to make everybody equally as blind in war? <laughs> well, again, I think she's like, the Technocore has basically enslaved humanity, uh, according to her. Mm -hmm. And the only way to extricate themselves from the Technocore is through Hyperion, because the Technocore can predict everything with great accuracy. So any plan they would try to come up with to defeat the Technocore or to get out from under their thumb, they would be able to see that coming. And their only blind spot involves Hyperion. Right. And so the only way to maybe save humanity is to get into the unknown where the core can't manipulate and control things. Makes sense. I mean, kind of. <laughs> as much as this book does make sense. <laughs> as much know. as anything does. <laughs> Since she can't go to Old Earth, since it's been destroyed, she instead goes to Heaven's Gate, where Martin first became a poet. Remember Heaven's Gate? Vaguely. I thought there was another Old Earth. Aren't there just like just a never-ending cycle of Old Earth? Supposedly, the Technocore has recreated Old Earth in a secret project. But she can't get to it. But she, I mean, she's not part of the Technocore. She technically can't get to it. Right. They keep it very secret. Okay. Anyway, sorry. Uh, well, it's Heaven's Gate. Heaven's Gate, where Martin you know, worked in the mud pits after yeah, he yeah, suffered it wasn't very his brain heavenly. damage. Yeah. She sees how the once muddy and hellish world has improved in the centuries since Martin left, thinking that despite the near death of science in the web, the addiction of humanity to their toys provided by the Technocore, and the inertia the core forces upon them, they had made some progress still. So they've cleaned up Heaven's Gate? Well, I mean, like, the, initially all that was to help terraform Heaven's Gate. So all the time that Martin was there, it was like, this is the initial stages of creating a world. Mm -hmm. Basically, a habitable human world. With a slave-esque population. Yeah, no, not good. It was good, Danielle. It was not good. <laughs> Indentured servitude is not what I consider positive. But she's like, we're past that. We've gotten better. We're good. We've made some progress. <laughs> On the backs of indentured servitude. So she finally decides to go one place she has avoided up until now. The moon! It's Earth's moon, Danielle! Oh no, is she going to drive it out of space? <laughs> no! <laughs> She's going to pilot the moon, go on an adventure, drive it in Hyperion, and blow it up. I mean, Asimov seemed to think that was possible. I, I would love to see Asimov like appear in this book as like a, a persona recreation and be like, I have a plan, guys. Oh, do I, don't I have a plan? I know if you've read this book court? of mine, but... First off, guys, you made a bunch of AIs without the three laws of robotics. Big mistake. I did not write <laughs> dozens of robot stories telling you about that and then for you just to ignore it. Like, dumb, dumb move. Come this on. is what you get for reading Keats and not Asimov. <laughs> right. You listen to the poets and the sci-fi authors when you made your AIs and this is what you get. Also, we can drive the moon, guys. It's going to be great. Let's do it. <laughs> I feel like Asimov would be seriously disappointed in their AI creations. He would be livid. 
He's like, I literally wrote dozens and dozens of stories about why the two laws of Robocop are important and also how they can go wrong. And you're like, well, we don't really need those. Uh, I want to see so many more re- personal recreations. Who else would you recreate take down if you had the opportunity besides Asimov and Keats? Who would you put in this world? I don't know the answer to that, so I might have to really think hard about it. You don't want to, like, I don't know, bring back Churchill or something and see how he'd react? No. No, uh, I don't. Well, I tried. <laughs> I don't think it'd be helpful. Who would be helpful? They could. A better general would probably be helpful. Like what? Patton. (laughs) Yes, Patton. He is crazy enough to work in the Japanese. (laughs) Maybe something from the Huns. (laughs) Genghis Khan. (laughs) Yes. Alexander the Great. Let's bring them all back. Destroy the world. Well, that's happening anyway, apparently. I'm surprised they're not bringing people back left and right. Well, it seems like the people who bring people back are the techno core, and they're not so keen to have all these human generals that could defeat them come back, I'd imagine. Well, I don't even mean just generals. I just mean people in general. You think they'd be, like, all over that. Well, like, who would they bring back? I don't know. I mean, they brought just back... Just random citizens? Or just more writers or artists? Why more or... writers? Like... I don't know. It's just throwing stuff in. <laughs> Clearly, there's only one writer who's important. Yeah, Keats is apparently the only thing anybody reads in this book. It's the only thing that matters in this book is Keats, Danielle. He's, Keats is the only person who matters, Danielle. If we've established in this book, everyone is just Keats in a different clothing. Yes, which is why Asimov isn't there. Well, I guess this is what happened when you put all your eggs in the Keats basket, Daniel. <laughs> all your Keats in the Keats basket. <laughs> Keats, all the, Keats everywhere. The Keats eggs. So anyway, he's on the moon. It's Earth's moon. It's been badly damaged by the big mistake that destroyed Earth. And mm-hmm, it still mm-hmm. orbits a bunch of debris where Earth had once been. Poor moon. You have something to say about the big mistake, Danielle? No, is there a colony on the moon? No, there's nothing living on the moon. There is a parade ground that the force uses to conduct some kind of ceremony. And that's it. A ceremony on the moon? They have a, they have a moon ceremony, Danielle. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> I mean, they're located on Mars. So like, well, where can we get that's close by? Oh, the moon. Let's do our ceremony there. Can't do it on Mars. No, Mars is where they do the training. The ceremony has to be on the moon, which is closest they can get to humanity's home planet. Unless they go to old Earth. They don't know where old Earth is. They can go to new Earth, but that's not the same. They should create their own old Earth. How? I they don't, don't even believe the Technocore can do that. <laughs> Well, they can, so here we are. <laughs> but they supposedly, I mean, Mina knows this because she has got her tentacles everywhere, but the general populace does not know this. Well, they should try harder. <laughs> okay. You tell them, just try harder to make an entire planet. <laughs> I don't know what goes into it, Sam. Uh, a lot of mass and probably a lot of vegetation. <laughs> they could just use the moon. <laughs> What, we recreate the Earth on the moon? Yeah, why not? Because it's the moon. It's a quarter the size of Earth. It's not big enough. It should be a little mini-Earth. It's fine. You don't have to make a mini- It's not recreating Earth, though, is it? You've, you've solved nothing. <laughs> Carry on, Sam. Moon ceremonies. <laughs> they have the ceremony on the moon, Danielle. Accept it. It's a moon ceremony. I did accept it. I said, okay, sounds good. Or something. <laughs> not my exact wording. No, not, not exactly. You're like, well, let's just make Earth. That'd be easier than just using the moon. <laughs> It's not what I said. I said they should use Earth. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Anyway, while Mina is there on the moon contemplating everything, another portal opens and her aide, Leigh Hunt, steps through. He goes up to her and says, M. Chief Executive, you must return at once. The Alistairs have succeeded in breaking through in an amazing counterattack. Oh no, I didn't see this coming at all. Uh, Mina definitely saw this coming. She's very <laughs> calm and responds, all right. 
Has Hyperion fallen? Can we evacuate our forces from there? But Hunt shakes his head, telling her she doesn't understand. It's not just Hyperion. The Alshers are invading the web itself! Uh-oh. It's like they knew that there was going to be an attack, and they have way more firepower than they did. <laughs> it's amazing, Danielle. It's like everything they said couldn't possibly happen is absolutely happening. <laughs> I didn't see this coming at all from the previous parts of the book. No, it was a complete surprise. Everyone should be shocked, especially all the generals. Is Mina shocked? No. I mean, a little bit, but not really. Okay. She knew that they were going to lose this war. The question was how. To what extent? Yeah. All right. We're back in the Valley of the Time Tombs. The remaining pilgrims gather to see Bronn and Martin off as they head to keep Kronos to retrieve food and water. As they leave... Martin mentions to Braun how everything's not really going to plan, and she's all like, there was a plan? <laughs> That's fair. And Martin replies, he had a plan. His plan was to finish the universe's greatest poem and then go home, because yeah, that was going to work. <laughs> I feel like out of all of the of the people who are going to see the strike, like his plan is the least likely to actually get accomplished, and it probably <laughs> right? will. I mean, it just feels like this is the kind of book where if, if any of the plans actually get accomplished, Martin's would. Because of just, home. Yeah, just because why not? But I feel like it, his idea was, I want to see the strike again because I need to finish this never-ending Cantos. is wild. <laughs> <laughs> he is convinced that he needs to finish this poem. And it's the universe's greatest poem. Then he'd be like, once it's done, he can just like, go home and everything's fine. Like, what are you going to do? <laughs> He's like, well, that was a hard day's work. <laughs> All right, done. Let me go back and kick it on my crazy house in my bathroom on the middle of the ocean. <laughs> so then Martin asks if she can access the Keats persona in the Shran loop just behind her ear. And Bron is all, no, of course not. But then she thinks about her dreams last night and how the presence in them had felt like Johnny. And she had seen images of the web. So I guess there is like, you know, some bi-directional communication between her and the other Keats persona where she can dream his experiences and vice versa. Interesting. How come she can't access the strong loop? Because it has way too much data for her to process. Like no comm link could ever process that much data. And like, what would she even do to access it? What's the point of her even having it? Danielle, that's a really good question. Why <laughs> did Johnny do this to her? <laughs> In this non-consensual bid to get yeah. his... <laughs> personality onto a human body well to hyperion basically like he basically just used her as a mule to, <laughs> to smuggle her onto hyperion what a jerk face i kind of but she loved him <laughs> he's the true villain keats uh, yeah johnny keats well uh, maybe all the keats are the true villains maybe this book is saying up that all the keats that we are are all evil that'd be funny I hope the Keats are evil. Evil Keats. <laughs> or like maybe there's like a good Keats and evil Keats at the fight, like a battle of, of... Do you think the end of this book or series or whatever, it's just an entire like p platoon of Keats fighting other Keats? You mean like an army of Keats yes. sweeping across I'm the universe? I'm super serious, Sam. I'm not, I'm not joking about this. <laughs> <Is that> do, <laughs> you think, do you think that's possible? <laughs> it's definitely possible. We've already seen at least two Keats so far. There could be more. It just feels like I could see an entire battle of Keats going on. Like Keats versus Technocore? Yeah, Keats versus, yes, or Keats versus Keats, and then whoever is the final Keats is the one that gets to, to win and survive on the new new Hyperion I Island. in our last episode, not of Hyperion, but in Happy Death Day 2, I mentioned the movie uh, The One with Jet Li, where all the different versions exactly. of Jet Li. Yes. Okay, good. We're on the same page. Like that yeah. with Keats. <laughs> Perfect. I, I would love that. Who will be the ultimate Keats? Who will write the best poetry? You can't convince me that that's not a plausible plot line for this book. It's extremely plausible, Danielle. I wouldn't <laughs> say probable. <laughs> 
All right. Sorry. Tangent. But I really think that's what's coming down the line, everybody. I really hope you're right. That'd be amazing. <laughs> Dan Smith, call me. It's a little late, Danielle. It's already been like, what, 30 years since you were published? <laughs> yeah, but they're new to me. I don't know what happens. Maybe it changes and people read it. Oh, okay. It's so like it's just never like ending story. time traveling thing. Got it. <laughs> Anyway, Martin casually mentions how easier it would be to travel to the keep if they traveled along the firmer ground near the abandoned city of Poets instead of across the dunes. So if they made a small detour near the city, hey, that'd be much easier, wouldn't it? And so he heads off in that direction. Braun then notices that one of the packs he brought to carry food is already full of something, but Martin just tells her to mind her own business. (laughs) They're like tribbles or something inside. (laughs) Yes, it's tribbles, Daniela. And then the whole planet's going to become Tribbles, and that's the real fate of humanity. Tribbles all the way down. He's packed him in his bag, and he's taking him with him. It's Tribbles, but they're all persona recreations of Keats in Tribble form. <laughs> they're going to help him, right? <laughs> the Tribbles are his, are his like, editing staff. <laughs> so as they trudge along the city, Martin lags behind and eventually stops to sit in a fallen column. He wonders if his old desk, where he wrote his Cantus was still in that room back in the castle in the City of Poets. Braun eventually doubles back to find out where he went, and Martin is all, hey, instead of going to the keep, let's just search the city for food. We're already here anyway, and it's much closer. And Braun replies that her and the consul have thought of that, but that likely all the stores in the city had already been pilfered over all the centuries that people have been using this as a stop on the pilgrimages, and that the wells were no longer good as the aquifers had shifted. So they need to go to the keep. And Martin is sort of angry at her for just assuming command, and declares that he's going to stay and explore, and she can go on without him. Okay. This is how they all die. This is basically just like a horror movie playing out. Yeah. It's exactly like a horror movie, Danielle. Martin is being the petulant teenager who's like, I'm going to go off on my own. It'll be fine. I don't need you. Yes. Well, we'll see how that works out for him, I believe, in just a few minutes. <laughs> I want to go explore the basement. <laughs> Bron finally figures out that he's brought his cantos with him in that pack and that he's hoping by being here again, he'll be able to finish it with his muse, the Shrike, so close. I mean, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> well, we'll see. <laughs> After pulling the old, go, I don't want you here anyway, from every movie where someone sends like a dog away for its own good, yeah. Martin sends Bron away, and Bron leaves and promises to return for him later. Okay. Bye, Martin. We loved you. Nah, did we? You seem to be like <laughs> the least likable of the characters. I kind of liked him, though. <laughs> I mean, he was fun, but like, he'd be the person I'd be most annoyed with if I had to hang out with him. Oh, sure. But I think the most interesting of the characters, arguably. Yeah. I mean, Saul is just tragic. He's the most likable, but the most tragic. Yeah. And the rest are kind of boring. <laughs> I don't know. Gasson is kind of crazy. I like how insane he is. That's true. You never know where that story's going. <laughs> exactly. And also, we got Father Paul DeRay out of Hoyt. I mean, that's got to be exciting. Maybe they have. I don't know if I saw that coming or not. I should <laughs> have. Will surprise you. I mean, maybe. It did telegraph it pretty hard, and then you're still surprised by it. It's great. <laughs> I'm not reading it, so. No, but I'm saying, like, I love how this book will still surprise you, even with the things it tells. Like, it's very not subtle, as they mentioned earlier, but yet it still manages to surprise people. <laughs> That's because there's just so much going on. Yeah, it's impossible to predict. Yeah, you can't just, and like, you might go, oh, this is probably going this direction, but 50% of the time you're wrong. So you can't ever be sure of anything. <laughs> exactly. So back in the Sphinx, DeRay is weakly eating, still not fully recovered from his resurrection. How mad is he to be alive again? He seems to be actually in pretty good humor. He's no, really? taking this all in stride. I really feel like if I had woken up after all of that effort to die, I'd be like, what the heck, man? 
Now, DeRay seems like, you know, fairly philosophical after spending 12 years not existing and then waking up immediately after, to him, dying the last time. No, I'd be so mean. I'd be so angry. <laughs> I agree. I'd be really like, I strapped myself to a Tesla tree for at least a year, dying dozens, hundreds, thousands of times in the most painful way possible, and I still didn't succeed. <laughs> I'd be super upset about it. I would not be in good humor. It's not like you got to rest those 12 years. <laughs> right? He was just non-existent for those 12 years. No, but DeRay seems to be fairly philosophical about his predicament, which, you know, props to him for having the better grace than I could have. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so DeRay had been listening to the recaps of the Pilgrim stories on the comm log and is trying to figure out the common connection between them. The Shrike. Okay, yeah, maybe, sure. <laughs> Problem solved. I mean, go home. Well, except over. for Braun never encountered the Shrike. Yeah, I was just I was actually just thinking about her while you were recapping people's story. I'm like, why is she here again? <laughs> <laughs> because of Keats. It's the Keats connection. Yeah, I, I figured that out. Saul asks if there even has to be a connection, and DeRay is insistent that there does. Their selection as pilgrims wasn't an accident. It was guided by one entity, the Technocore. Nina. <laughs> It was it was guided by Mina. Mina, well, and the Techno Corps. They advised her, I think. We'll why, get to that. Why is she trustful? Oh, gosh, Danielle. I have so many questions about that when we get to a big reveal <laughs> at a certain point. I'm already mad. <laughs> you should be. <laughs> the console agrees that everything that's happened, the Pilgrims, the war, was because of the internal politics of the Corps between all the different factions, the Ultimates and the Stables and the... I forget the rest one. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Those really important things you got mad at me for not remembering. I didn't get mad at you. I was just telling you about them. Yeah. Uh. I remember their name. I remember what the three fractions were. Anyway, not important. The ones that want to kill humanity, the ones that want to preserve humanity, and the ones that only want to create the ultimate intelligence and don't care about humanity at all. The partiers. Yeah, the partiers. And I'd also love it if, like, DeRay is so sure there's a connection, and it'd be great if like, just wasn't one. They're like, well, the Tentacore just picked it random because they didn't care. <laughs> They're trying to destroy humanity anyways. What do they care? Well, one faction is. The other faction is not. So Why? So there's the people who are the are the Technicore, the portion of the Technicore that picked these people. Are they the ones that like don't want to destroy humanity? It's hard to say. Like The AI Advisory Council is presented as more of like a gestalt consciousness of all of the Technicore. Mm -hmm. There are internal politics, but I, I don't know – how the destruction of like the AI advisory council is some kind of amalgam of all their voices together or if certain parties control it, it's very unclear. But I would assume that there was at least some part of the Technocore that was like, well, if they're going to go for Hyperion, at least we should get some control for who they picked to send there. So they know that this is like Mina's bid. Well, they knew that Mina was going to send the pilgrims to Hyperion, there was a war with the Alshkers coming. And so, you know, that was one of their predictions. They didn't know how it was going to end, but they knew there was going to be a war. Why did Mina go to the Technicore, who she knows is potentially evil, to pick her people? I don't know, Danielle. Maybe she wanted to get their opinion just to sort of see what they would tell her, and she had her own picks to compare it against. I'd like to think that's true, because otherwise it just seems dumb. Or maybe she's assuming the Technicore is going to want to pick people that are going to have the most impact because they don't know what's going on, and... They're going to fall to their own hubris by thinking they can control everything and they can't. Okay. All right. Whatever. Go on. <laughs> I don't know, Danielle. I know very little about Mina's plan here at this point. All I know is she has a plan, which is to destroy the web, sacrifice the web to save humanity in some way, and Hyperion is a part of that. That's literally all I got. It just seems crazy to be like, I want to destroy the Technicore. 
So I'm going to trust the Technocord to give me the pieces to destroy itself. Well, she doesn't want to destroy the Technocore so much as extricate humanity from the Technocore. Yeah, so but maybe like, she's still like, trusting can go the Technocore. Still trusting the Technocore to give you the pieces to do that seems wild. I mean, she doesn't trust it. Maybe she's thinking that you know the Technocore has really no choice but to give her some good information. But I don't know, Danielle. Again, it might be revealed later that this is all baloney, and she was just doesn't care about the Pilgrims and the Technocore was. She was just trying to get the Technocore involved so that it didn't figure her out. I would love I it know. if the uh, pilgrims had nothing to do with anything. <laughs> they were just right. like, like, you follow them this whole time, and then you're like, just kidding. <laughs> Again, Danielle, I would not put that past this book. Anything could be possible at this point. <laughs> just a ploy. So back to the book here, the, talking about the Technocore and its internal politics. And DeRay asserts the goal of the Technocore is the same as the goal of humanity, which is to know God or failing that to create him. <laughs> so uh, yeah. that's where we are in this book. <laughs> Isn't that kind of where human culture is in general? Yeah, that's exactly what he is saying. <laughs> <laughs> so the council decides to step outside to try one more time to call the ship, and Saul and Dre accompany him, but the ship does not respond. Shocking. They talk some more, Dre asking what the ousters are seeking, and the council responds that their obsession with Hyperion is real. They think this will be the birthplace of a new hope for humankind. Mm-hmm. And so they're, it's the strike. Maybe the strike, maybe something else. I don't know. Baby strike. Baby strike. Do, 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 do. No. <laughs> Maybe it's Shrike, Shrike Baby, it's Baby Keats. Maybe uh, the Shrike We're really and... Getting, let's, let's, let's see how this goes, Daniel. Let's see where this goes. Put it together. Maybe the Shrike and Manita, Manita are going to have a baby. And then Baby Keats and Baby Shrike are going to have a baby. And that's the hope for humanity. You mean the baby that Ron is carrying? Yes. So even though Monita... Moneta is with Kassad, that's somehow going to be the Shrike's baby. Yeah. She's probably also sleeping with the Shrike. She's one with the <laughs> I don't Shrike. Know if that's physically possible, Danielle. <laughs> you don't know that. <laughs> well, the last time someone slept with the Shrike, it was Kassad, and the Shrike had very much a horrifying representation of female genitalia. Sure. I mean, we can also say Kassad and Monita, and then they have still have a baby Shrike because she's part Shrike. Yeah. Well, maybe she's part Shrike. According to her, she's just a human who was brought forward in time to accompany the Shrike back in time. Well, something happens between then and later. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? What does even later mean in this book when time travel is happening? In my head, it went backwards. Okay, great. <laughs> All right. Anyway, that's what I think. I, mean, I think you need a Keats Shrike hybrid. I would love to see to a Keats Shrike hybrid. Very possible. I mean, although the Shrike isn't really biological, maybe? Who knows? It's, got, it's probably still in plants or something. <laughs> you think it's like it put its eggs in the chest of one of these? I don't know how it works. Alien style. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I have no idea either. You could be very much right. I think I think I am right. Okay. Well, we're going to find out one way or another in the next X number of years. <laughs> All right. What happens next? They start to worry that Braun and Martin haven't returned yet, and they head back as it gets dark, and there's still no sign of them. The consul suggests they could try sleeping in a different tomb tonight just to shake things up, but Saul says that they're welcome to do so, but he can't leave the Sphinx. Rachel is now almost exactly two days old. Oh, no, Rachel. This book's going to be sad and just kill her off. <laughs> it's just going to vanish. And like, yeah, try. Yeah, like their whole point, the whole plot of her, their story is not going to matter at all. Oh, I think I remember what happens to Rachel Danielle. You're not going to like it. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm already prepared for the worst. <laughs> I, don't th- I don't think you are. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean just death. I just feel like there's there a plethora of things that could happen to Rachel, and I don't feel like any of them are good. Yeah, okay, there we go. We want the <laughs> nail on the head there. Especially with all the like talk of giving up for... Uh, no, to the gods or whatever. Right, the sacrifice. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. 
So the consul decides to head out to look for Martin and Brun one last time. And as he's doing so, he sees someone in the distance coming from the other way, from the opposite end of the valley from where Bron and Martin have gone. Uh-oh. The figure moves slowly past the jade tomb before collapsing. They all rush out to see who it is. And as they approach, they see Danielle. Do you know who it is? Uh, what's his face that ran away earlier without his box? It's the true voice of the tree, Hetmastine. Oh, he's I back! called it! Oh, <laughs> uh, Hetmastine, he's back and he's ready to Templar again. <laughs> And he's probably evil. It's fine. He might not be evil, Danielle. He might be evil. I don't know. <laughs> he's the new Shrike. I forgot to mention something. I'll just mention here because it's talking <laughs> to the Templars. Is that while Gladstone was on the Templar homeworld, she was like, oh, the Templars are a very important part of her plan. They're her like most important and also most inscrutable allies. So is she concerned that What's-His-Face wasn't there? Or was she expecting that? Kind of, but she's like, was very much taken by surprise when they sacrificed the Yggdrasil and... She's all like, well, they are part of this and they are very important and I have no idea what they're doing. So apparently the Templars are important in some way. Danielle, I just want to make sure that was clear in case it comes back. I really figured they were important when he disappeared. But like <laughs> extra important. The whole like Templar society is important, not just nesting. Okay. Martin, meanwhile, has been writing furiously all day using the archaic forms of pen and paper. Good for him. Getting his muse on. Yeah. His cantos is flowing again as he writes in the large common hall of the city under the geodesic dome. I'm happy for him until he dies. Okay. His poem, if you recall, is about a war between the Hellenic gods, the Titans being usurped by their offspring, the Olympians. The book states that it's obvious that the Titans represent the heroes of humankind's short history, and the Olympians, the usurpers, are the Technocore AIs. So, there you go. Perfect. Love it. Print it. <laughs> He's trying to. The constant threat of the Shrike is what drives him. And when he saved his own life years ago, he lost his muse and his will to write. But now, inspired again, he's surprised at what he writes, as if the words are not his own. His only desire is to finish the poem, to know how it ends. So this is the poem he thinks is like the be-all end-all of humanity. That is not only telling the story of humanity, but also writing the story of humanity. You know, it is at once the story and also like creating the story of humanity. That sounds like a poet. <laughs> very much, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> a very full of himself poet, to be clear. <laughs> Love it. Suddenly, something surprising happens in the story. The Titans and the Olympians sit down to negotiate, Saturn and Jupiter showing fear of a third usurper, and they decide to shake hands and unite in an alliance against dot dot dot. But before he learns what the third thing is, he notices that it's dark, he can barely see, and he comes out of his trance. <laughs> Ah, uh, Dan Smith. <laughs> right? Perfect. He's pleased that Braun has not returned for him. He needed solitude to finish his poem and figures a few more hours, the night perhaps, and he'll be done with it finally. And then what? I don't know. You know you have not corrected me every single time I've said Dan Smith. I, I haven't heard you say Dan Smith. Danielle. Oh, I definitely said Dan Smith like twice. Oh, it's Dan Smith. <laughs> yes, I know. And I was like, that's wrong. <laughs> Sam has not corrected me. I apologize for not paying enough attention to you saying Dan Simmons to hear it was Dan Smith. I just pictured Dan. I'm like, it's Dan Simmons. She's got it. I usually got it. Just not today. All right. My apologies to Dan Simmons and maybe Dan Smith, depending on how he feels about this. We don't know who wrote this. So Martin gathers up the pages and looks for a place to hunker down for the night. But as he turns, he sees something standing there in the darkness, Danielle. Know what it is? Lady Trike. Kassad, well, new Shrike. It's the Shrike, not the Lady Shrike, it's the regular Shrike. <laughs> that he seemed too obvious, I was trying to, like, give him credit. <laughs> I 
mean, yeah, go with the obvious. This book is not trying to set things up as subtle. It literally tells you what the metaphor of this poem is. It's the shrike. It's the shrike. Not now, Martin shrieks at it. But of his own, but of its own volition, his hand twitches and writes on the paper he's holding, it is time, Martin. <laughs> this is the first communication the shrike has ever seemed to grant anyone. Then he writes on the tabletop itself, you were ready to trade places with your patron, but Martin begs, not now, not before he can finish his cantos. Besides, Billy's dead, so what does it matter? Because, oh, he means trade places, like, because Billy's dead, he gets to be dead too. Well, no, like, when originally the Shrike had come for Billy and Martin had the opportunity to trade places with him, he instead set him on fire and took his cantos and ran? Yeah, I don't really. I mean, I remember the fire part. I didn't remember the trading places part. Well, he didn't like trade places, but he was like, he had the opportunity to try to save Billy and sacrifice himself, and he decided to save his cantos and sacrifice Billy. Right, right, right. So he's like, you were ready to trade places with your patron, and now's your opportunity to make right on that, basically, is what this is saying. Uh-huh. Strikes fair. And so he's like, no, not now. I have to finish my cantos. And the pen writes, no. And then the Shrike <laughs> reaches out and grabs Martin's arm, piercing it to the bone. The Shrike lifts and takes him out into the valley where a massive metal tree of thorns rises high into the sky. The top may very well be out in space, it's so big. On the thorns writhe the bodies of countless people. They're still alive? They're just hanging tight? Apparently still alive and <laughs> writhing in internal agony on the thorn to the How tree of the How would you not bleed to death? <laughs> Danielle, the Shrike controls time. Maybe it just sort of freezes you in time. So That's true. I forgot. That. I'm sorry. I, I keep forgetting. <laughs> Magic Shrike tree, Danielle. <laughs> Go with it. Poor Martin. Martin struggles against the Shrike as it hugs him to it. His own handwriting in blood, it is necessary on the Shrike's chest. <laughs> His madness is driven not out of fear of pain, but of being so close to finishing his life's work, but not being able to do it. That would be super the annoying. <laughs> it's so hilarious. Like, I was about to finish my poem. You come right now to take me away. Come on. What a stupid muse. Oh, it's great. The muse is like, uh-uh, not yet. Freaking amazing. I love it. <laughs> Does he push him into the tree? Well, we cut to Braun, Danielle, who meanwhile has reached Keep Kronos. She climbs the 661 stairs back to the top of the keep. The keep was dark, no lights or power, and Braun digs out her flashlight to find the storeroom. Did the stair count matter? Uh, I don't know. The book mentions it. So again, Danielle, <laughs> I mentioned it just in case. Gosh, you didn't see my eye roll when he said that, but there was one. <laughs> Danielle, so much has come back that seemed unimportant from the previous book. I have no idea what's important or not. So loaded up with supplies, food and water, she's preparing to leave when she hears a noise down in the great hall between her and the staircase. Uh-oh. She goes down to the hall, but is empty, except for a massive sculpture of the Shrike's face, which, you know, <laughs> creepy. <laughs> Shrike. Shrike made the noise. <laughs> Then she hears a scream, an inhuman scream that is cut off abruptly. Is it Martin being stabbed to the tree? <laughs> it came from a small door under six large stained glass windows in the hall, echoing up as if from far below. She's like, I think I'm going to go check out the noise, you guys. Braun is intensely curious. She really <laughs> wants to check it out. <laughs> this is how she dies in the horror movie. <laughs> She is all about that noise, Danielle. The book is like, Braun's always been curious. That's what made her become a detective. And she is really curious about this. But she thinks to herself, not this time. She has people depending on her, and she backs away from the door, pistol in hand, and out and down the hundreds of steps back to the valley floor. Look at her. Not potentially dying in that moment, but maybe in 10 seconds. 
her restraint is rewarded as she looks up and notices that the gargoyles are tumbling down towards her from the parapet. There's a rock slide! Boulders and gargoyles and things are tumbling at her. Oh no! Run away! She quickly dives for a crevice between two boulders and takes shelter as the rocks crash around her. You don't want death by gargoyle. No, that's that's like the ultimate irony. <laughs> One small rock manages to ricochet into her hiding place, striking her on the temple and knocking her out. She awakes to darkness, less than an hour later. She gathers up the supplies and makes her way out over the rubble. She stops to search for Martin in the dead city of poets, but can't find him, surprisingly. Shocking. He must be stuck to a tree somewhere. <laughs> Probably stuck to a tree somewhere, <laughs> having a grand time, wondering about how his campus is going to end. <laughs> Writhing in eternal agony, but mostly just mad that he can't finish his cantos. <laughs> right. He does not care about the agony. He's like, I just want to give me a pen. Let me finish my poem. And I don't care about the agony. So she can't find him. And so she heads back to the tombs, which are softly glowing again, Danielle. D-Day Shrike is doing a low-key set this evening. Yes. Bring it on. Mm, mm. More gentle, Dan. I'd be like more like a a <laughs> a, a, a chill lo-fi mix. <laughs> is he still doing DJ Shrike mix, or is this kind of like an acoustic guitar thing at a coffee house? I think it's like still techno, but it's like a lo-fi <laughs> techno to to relax and, and chill out to. Got it. Okay. Like that YouTube channel. <laughs> yes, that YouTube channel. <laughs> uh, people know what I'm talking about. I'm sure. <laughs> I wish there was a DJ Shrike YouTube channel. Somebody make that. We could make that. I feel like we would be the ones responsible to make that. <laughs> we would, Danielle. That's way too much work. I don't want to do that. <laughs> Our very niche uh, crowd of people that would listen to it. <laughs> right? Like you and me and that's it. <laughs> Listeners who are into DJ Shrike. Has any expressed interest in DJ Shrike yet, Danielle? Have anyone invested in our business for DJ Shrike? I don't think anybody's invested in the business for DJ Shrike, but we've gotten some good feedback about DJ Shrike. <laughs> okay, well, I guess we'll just keep at it then. <laughs> so as Braun returns to the Valley of the Time Tombs, she finds the Sphinx empty. The sleeping packs are there. Everything is still there, except for one thing that's missing, Danielle. Do you know what's missing? Uh, Besides the people. Johnny the Salamander. <laughs> yes, Johnny the Salamander. Their mascot. You didn't know that they had that with him the whole time. <laughs> oh, yeah, Danielle, we're going to do a new character. It's Johnny the Salamander. He is also a Keats because obviously his name is Johnny. He is Lizard Keats who has come to keep them company. Uh, I feel like that's not outside the realm of possibility. <laughs> it is distinctly not. No. There is one piece of luggage missing. It is the Mobius box that belonged to Hetmaster. Oh, I should have guessed that. Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I gave you the chance. <laughs> Sorry, I got sidetracked by the salamander. Johnny Salamander would be an excellent <laughs> mascot. You find out they had a salamander with them the entire time. The salamander keeps just chilling like, I was here the whole time. Listen, <laughs> guys, I have advice for you. Don't talk to the Shrike. He's not a cool dude. <laughs> so Bron goes outside and there standing before her is Johnny Salamander. No, it's the Shrike. <laughs> it's the Shrike. She yells at it, where are they? What have you done with Saul and the others? I like that everybody tries to have these, like, rational conversations with him. Oh, she's not interested in having a rational conversation. She just yells at it and then starts shooting the strike repeatedly with her pistol in the face. <laughs> That's a little bit what Martin did, though. It's like, get out of here! Martin tried to. <laughs> he tried, but Martin did not succeed, because... It's Martin. Who cares? He didn't have a gun. The strike does not seem to care about being repeatedly shot in the face That's by surprising. an old pistol. And then she cries at it, I did not come here to die, and... I'm sure she didn't, but that's not the point. What? I mean, she had to have known that was a very distinct possibility. Yeah, like, I'm going to go to the Valley of the Time Tombs to confront the Shrike, a beast known for killing, and, and I don't intend to die. Is some major hubris. Yeah. <laughs> I would feel like you're very likely to die, in fact. In fact, I think the most likely outcome is you're going to die, so <laughs> you did come here to die. 
Then the strike cocks his head to the side as if listening to a distant sound, kind of like a dog would do, and then vanishes. He's like, uh-oh, I hear the heartbeat of baby Keats. I must go find Peace the Keats out, persona. Peace out, time suckers. <laughs> Peace out, time suckers. His, his immortal catchphrase of the, of the strike. <laughs> I'm just saying, I didn't see Braun dying and like immediately because she has a baby Keats inside of her. It would be like no, it just seems plotless. <laughs> oh, you and the baby dies, and then the baby Keats persona also dies. It's all pointless. Like I think knows? Rachel will die before baby Keats dies. Oh, Danielle, uh, well, let me just take a quick poll here. Who do you think is going to die in this book? I say this book. Who's going to die in this book, Danielle? Of, I, of the pilgrims, I think Rachel's going to die. It might not be like dead, dead, but there's some kind of metaphorical or rebirthing, or I don't know. But Rachel's going to die. Um, Saul okay. might die. Sure. After Rachel. Um, see. How's the saga going to hold up? You think? Uh, Tit or miss. He's a fifty-fifty. <laughs> <laughs> Martin. Uh, I don't know. He's eternally stuck to that tree, so. You he's, think like, he's, de- he, he's the most likely to be in a state of death or agony, of eternal agony. Yeah, I don't know if he'll actually die, but he's, he's you know, he's hanging in there, literally. He's out of the picture, basically what you're saying. He's going to be rendered moot. He's literally hanging in there. Okay, thank you, Danielle. You're welcome. Um, who else do we got? Pet Mastine? Uh, I think he'll live for a little bit longer because we don't know anything about him. <laughs> Fair. I don't know if he'll make it through the whole book, but he'll definitely make it through the next several chapters. Otherwise, that'd be just hilarious. And the <laughs> right, console... He immediately dies like... We- he immediately dies with her nothing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the console. I don't know. He's such like, I don't know anything about the console. I don't, I don't understand his character other than the point that he was the one that, you know, upended everything. But I don't understand him as a character. He okay, could die. Well, I don't care if he dies, to be honest. He could die. You don't, I don't care if he dies, but do you think he's going to die? I'm going to say sure, because I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Awesome. <laughs> Wonderful. Lastly, but not leastly, DeRay slash Hoyt. Oh, yeah. I forgot about him. I would really like for them to be able to die. Yeah, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, but I don't know. This book seems to enjoy dragging people's deaths out, so he might survive. He likes to, like, <laughs> give them to fake out deaths. Yeah, so they might make it. They might die in some kind of religious cacophony towards the end. <laughs> oh, perfect. That was most people dead, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think the only one who might likely survive was Braun and... I just think she might survive at least until she gives birth. Okay, then she's dead. Yeah, possibly. I'm not. She's not that important. So as long as she can get the Keats off of her, Sean uh, <laughs> Luke and the, the baby Keats out, out of her, her. That's what matters. <laughs> she can get the Keats out of her. She'll be. She's dead. Well, Danielle, I guess that's most of the pilgrims dead by your count. I mean, that which is that the not point a bad of the plot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the plot literally says only one of them is going to survive, and the, and the rest are going to die. So that's not a bad assumption. I think as it stands now, Braun has the highest likelihood of not dying in the immediate future because she has baby Keats, and I don't know what baby okay, Keats has well, to do we'll with find anything. Out. But unless they like, (laughs) she has an early birth or something, or is able to transfer the consciousness of baby Keats into another Sean Loop. (laughs) Well, don't forget, she's carrying a literal baby. I know. That's why I think she'll make it through at least the birth. Okay, great. So she screams at the strike, I didn't come here to die. A thing we discussed in length just now. (laughs) He disappears. The strike cocks his head, disappears. Lamia sits on a pack and drinks some water, like relieved. And then surprise, the strike reappears by her side again. Slips a single bladed fingertip deep under the skin behind her ear where the Shran loop implant is. Did he take it out? Striking bone. Does he pop it off? I have no idea. That's where the chapter ends. <laughs> I assume the Shrike really just wants to meet Keats. He's like, hey, he's in there. I gotta find him. I told you, Keats really wants to meet the Shrike. Or vice versa. They want to meet each other, Danielle. It's destiny. It is. Obviously. It clearly is destiny. So we cut to Kassad. 
Seeing the chaos of a battle as he steps out of the portal, sometime between entering the portal and exiting, the shrike which had been escorting him by his arm has vanished. He and Monita, Moneta are alone on a mountaintop, the same mountain that Billy had his face carved into, like Mount Rushmore. <laughs> They're overlooking the city of Keats, which is burning. The highways clogged with humanity fleeing the burning city. Any skimmers that take off are immediately blasted from space by presumably ouster ships. Using the enhanced vision of his skin suit, he sees a bunch of force marines set up defenses on a hill near the spaceport. Then a bunch of ouster dropships fall from the sky accompanied by space paratroopers, I guess? Which apparently can't travel in the, sp- in the dropships but have to parachute individually down from space. Space paratroopers. That's my best description for them, Danielle. I don't know what they're actually called. Space troopers. Shock troops, drop troops, I don't know. We're not given a name. The Force Marines do a good job of picking them off, but Cassad estimates that at least 40% of the ousters still reach the ground. Plenty for an invasion. Space poopers. I said space troopers. I said space poopers. Why did you say space poopers? Because paratroopers. Sorry. I still don't understand. If you put together para and troopers, you get poopers, space poopers. Oh, okay, great. Thank you, Danielle. Thank you. For the the immensely highbrow joke you've contributed to this episode. <laughs> it was funny. I love how much you crack yourself up with that joke. <laughs> Somebody's got to crack me up. <laughs> oh, I'm here to explain the very serious and very tightly scripted book of Hyperion, Danielle. No holes in this plot. Everything is completely serious. No. Space poopers. All right. Well, you keep that in mind, Danielle, for next time. <laughs> Kassad asks Monita Moneta if this is all happening now, and she's all, when is now? Because she's the worst. <laughs> she would be the worst, too, just to hang out with. You ask her any question, like, what does it mean to mean? What's the definition of is, is kind of thing? And Kassad's like, now, contiguous with our meeting in the time tombs. And she says, no, this is the future. Five days from when they first arrived in the valley. So two days from when they actually met. Uh-huh. Then she asks if Kassad wants to join the fight. Kassad contemplates that he could probably turn the tide of the battle by himself with his magic skin suit of silver, but says, no, now is not the time. Munita chides him that the Lord of Pain believes he's a warrior. Are they trying to, like, get him on a- their side? I don't know, Danielle. They're having a conversation <laughs> here in the war zone. They're, like, turning him to the dark or light side we're not sure well Kassad says the lord of pain can go screw himself unless it wants to fight him he came here to kill it and maybe monita whenever they agree to do battle <laughs> whenever they stop having sex monita's all like you still think i'm your enemy and Kassad recontextualizes the earlier sexual assault not as a rape but as a grant of his own sub vocalized desires to be lovers with monita which again ew and it's gross yeah no it sounds the psychology of this is not good <laughs> He says he doesn't know what Monita is, and she says she was once a victim, like many others. Then, far in the future, she saw why the Lord of Pain had been forged, had to be forged, and then she became its companion and keeper. She monitored the time tides, maintained the machinery, seeing to it that the Shrike didn't awake before its time. But she doesn't control it. Only someone who defeats it in personal combat can command the Shrike. Only somebody who defeats in personal combat can... Okay. Problem with that sentence, Danielle? No, I was trying to fully understand the sentence that seemed important. (laughs) Basically, if you want to command the Shrike, you got to beat it in hand-to-hand combat. Yeah, I got it. I was just, you know, you were talking a lot, so I was like doing the Zen thing, and then when you got to something important, I wanted to make sure I understood it. (laughs) You meant you zoned out and weren't paying attention, is what you said. I did not zone out. I I caught the important part of that sentence. Okay, the rest doesn't matter. (laughs) 
I listened to the now, rest. None of Monita's backstory, Monetta's backstory seems to matter. She you. was caring for the, to, waiting for the time tombs, had to make sure he didn't arrive before it was his time. Blah, 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 blah. She comes from the future. We got it. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> You're underestimating my powers of Zen. Mm, based on the the, the, the the summary you gave today, I don't know if I am. There's a different kind of Zen. Oh, my mistake. I didn't realize there were so many different kinds. My short term is good, Sam. My long term is sketchy. Okay. Well, Kassad then asks, has anyone succeeded? And Mineta says, no one has. Not in his past or his future, which is her past, so she would know. Though millions have tried. Kassad is all, well, will I be allowed to fight it? And Mineta replies... He will. And then Kassad's like, let's go. Let's go now. I challenge him to personal combat. <laughs> oh, Kassad. Uh. <laughs> I know, right? He's like, I'm determined to do this, even though I know it's futile. And without a word, Monita brings the portal back into existence. All right, we're back on Tau Steady Center. Gladstone returns to a briefing room as senators and other leaders pour in. As soon as people settle, she asks General Morpurgo to explain just what the heck is going on. They underestimated everything once again. I don't know why he needs to explain it. We all know what went wrong. Oh, we're going to get so much for this. It's so good. Morpurgo clears his throat and states that the Alistairs have succeeded in a devastating surprise attack and are closing in on half a dozen web worlds. Gladstone is all, you assured us they were years away at best. And Morpurgo responds that the swarms has set up decoy hawking drive trails, have been traveling at sublight speeds for decades. I can't there believe There was no way it. to detect them. How could they have known? It was impossible. <laughs> I'm just so surprised. This is just, uh, this war is a constant surprise to me. <laughs> right? It's amazing how like little they expect the unexpected, if that makes any sense. <laughs> One of the senators... Kolchev is all, you gave us absolute assurance. How did this happen? And Morpurgo is just like, we had faulty data, we were wrong, our assumptions were wrong, and myself and the other joint chiefs will be resigning immediately. Yes, you will. And I was like, yeah, but like, your data was wrong, but you assumed it was correct. Like, why would you assume your data was correct? It's just such a hilarious confidence in being so wrong. I also think they should be sent onto ships that have to go fight the front lines. Well, that should be true of pretty much every war. <laughs> like, you should, all the leaders should be on the front lines of any war. I think that's a, that's a, a fair punishment for anyone who wants to start a war. <laughs> Agreed. Sadly, we do not improve as humans enough to get to the future where that is the case. No. Gladstone is all like, all right. We were wrong, but what are we going to do about this invasion? And Morpurgo says that only one planet has even a modest force contingent of ground troops available. And while the others can be reached by the fleet via Farcaster, it would spread the fleet very thin. And oh yeah, they had already begun the reinforcement of Hyperion, so all those ships will take even longer to bring back. So there's really nothing they can do. <laughs> they're, they're screwed. They're Perfect. their pants down. Stupid. <laughs> it is so stupid. I love it. At best, they can move in some of their remaining ground troops to buy enough time to evacuate VIPs. But sadly, almost all of their ground troops have already been committed to the Hyperion. Again, hours and hours away at best. So they committed not only all their space forces, but all their ground forces to Hyperion. They put everything in the Hyperion basket. It's incredible, really. Just an amazing bit of work. Mina is then all, you mentioned a first wave. Is there more to this invasion? And Morpurgo says that of the dozen swarms they know exist, all are committed to this invasion. Some of them split up into multiple invasion fleets. So the first waves will hit the outer worlds in a few hours. The next waves will hit the inner worlds, including Tau Ceti Center, between 100 to 250 hours from now. So that's pretty much all the time they have left to exist as the web. 
Well, that's what they get. Mina sort of contemplates in her head what she's done. Quote, In order to save humanity from what she considered an eternity of slavery or worse extinction, she had been prepared to open the front door of the house to the wolves while most of the family hid upstairs, safe behind locked doors. Only now the day had arrived and the wolves were coming in through every door and window. She almost smiled at her ultimate foolishness and thinking she could uncage chaos and then control it. So she's destroying humanity from both ends. Yeah, so she'd been like, okay, I need to destroy the web, but I can at least save humanity by preserving them from extinction of the core. And, you know, maybe there'll be some loss of life, a few planets, but now she's like, uh-oh, it looks like I also have underestimated the ouster's intent for killing us and it's going to wipe out most of humanity. So it, it's going to be a bigger devastation than she assumed. It's a win-win. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> Mina then makes a little speech. She won't let anyone resign. The government will likely fall. You know, if they win this, they're going to be prosecuted by their own people. And if they lose, it doesn't matter. So until one of those events happens, they're still the government and have responsibility to do what they can. Okay. She orders that force is to use every means it can to protect the hegemony and evacuate as many people as possible. So good luck, guys. I don't know what you're going to use to do that, but have fun. Wild. She will then call a full session of the Senate and the All Thing to issue a formal declaration of a state of war between the hegemony and the ousters, which will accomplish something, I guess. It's weird that they didn't even have a backup plan. Like, just in case we're wrong, here's our no. plan. <laughs> they were so confident. <laughs> well, just crazy, man. I think that's part of one of the... the ideas here is that humanity has decayed so much in this time. They've lost science, they've lost curiosity, they've become complacent and overconfident and relying on the Technocore and its predictions. Like they said, oh, the Technocore gave us a 99.96% chance of winning this war. We're fine. Mm -hmm. There's no reason to consider other options. We're 100% confident, essentially. Crazy. So humanity has decayed, basically. I know. Do they really deserve to survive? Well, not as they are. That's what Mina's hoping to do, is extricate themselves from relying on the Technocore so they can become more creative again and flourish. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry about the info dump, Danielle, but that's what this chapter is. <laughs> Uh, so she's going to call a full session, and she wants all the senators, she wants, and all the people with the all things, she wants a unanimous agreement on this vote for war. And again, I don't know why she's so obsessed with this vote for war, because it's not going to change anything. Like, if they all agree, yeah, we're at war, what's that change? Have they not been at war up until this point? Yeah, it seems weird. She thinks she could just do whatever she wants at this point. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> She then adjourns the meeting, requesting that Council Albedo and the Speaker of the All Thing Gibbons and Senator Kolchev meet in her office. When they do the war um, thing, when they vote for war, does the the young guy that was in the last section that you said comes back? Does he say that he's not he's against war? Well, they haven't done the vote for war yet. That's I know, but happen when later. that happens, is that where he comes back in? I don't know, Daniel. <laughs> Yes, you do know. No, I don't, because let me tell you, you'll, you'll see, you'll see. So in her office, she turns to Albedo, which is the representative of the AI Advisory Council, and mm -hmm. is all, you have betrayed us. And Albedo's all like, never. <laughs> okay. And she replies, then why didn't you warn us about this ouster invasion? And Albedo says that it's all because of Hyperion, the Hyperion variable. We told you we couldn't predict things with Hyperion <laughs> in the mix. And even though the invasion started decades ago, it may have been the decision around Hyperion that you made here to do this war on Hyperion is what started the ousters down that path of invasion. So we really had no idea. Uh-huh, uh-huh. We advised you against anything involving Hyperion. We even helped you pick the pilgrims whose request of the strike could change the war, or most likely to change the war, even if we couldn't predict how their requests would change the war. 
And then Mina's like, all right, depending on how things shake out in the next few days, I'm considering declaring war on the Technocore, between the Hegemony and the Technocore. And Albita laughs and like, you must be under shock and making a poor joke. Declaring war on us is like a fish declaring war on water. <laughs> and Mina assures him that this is no joke. And then she dismisses him and he uncharacteristically vanishes abruptly, shaken by the exchange. Why would you tell them that you're going to declare war on them? Uh, Danielle, I don't know Mina's plan. Mina has plans. I don't know what they are. She clearly like has bad, thoughts It's here. like when you're the good guy and you're standing behind the bad guy and you're like, I'm behind you. I'm going to shoot you. <laughs> right. I agree. It seems unnecessary, but maybe she's hoping she can frighten them into being more helpful than they're being right now. I guess. But don't they want to destroy her humanity anyway? Maybe. Danielle, it's going to get real convoluted real quick oh, at some point. It's already hard enough, Sam. She then tells Gibbons and Kolchev that she wants full support when war is declared and dismisses them too. And then, guess who she calls for? Uh, Severn. Yeah, she calls for Severn to be brought for her. Hey! Who has not been in this part up until this point. He's yeah, been irrelevant. Yeah, I was thinking that. I was like, where was he? He's been knocked out in his drug-induced stupor that he, he put himself in. And she's like, wake him up, bring him here in 20 minutes. Also, she wants Commander Lee, the guy you were talking about, to be promoted to something like Rear Admiral, whatever it takes, so that he can be brought in as her advisor as well. And then... Because he was the only one that was against war? Yeah, like she wants this one guy who spoke up and wasn't like all on board the, oh, this is a great plan train. Like the one who had independent thoughts, unlike <laughs> the other generals. She's like, I need that guy. He clearly can think for himself, unlike everyone else. Mm -hmm. And she's like, okay, bring those people here to me. Then she braces herself for a slew of meetings. And that's where we end today. <laughs> I appreciate the um, calling together a ragtag team. I'm still not pro-humanity in this book yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to be pro-anything in this book, Danielle. Everyone kind of sucks. I kind of like the ousters. <laughs> Well, because really, I don't have reason yet. Yeah, I don't have reason to dislike them yet. Well, I mean, they were fairly brutal in their butchering of people when they invaded Brazil. Like, they seem to be pretty cruel they do. In, in how they treat people. That's true. At least the hegemony. Well, maybe they see the hegemony as subhuman, which would not be cool, but I don't know. We'll find out later. Maybe. Someday. The Templars seem chill. They like nature and stuff. Yeah, but we don't know anything about them either. See, all the ones we like <laughs> are the ones we don't know anything about. <laughs> we like Saul. We know a lot about Saul. That's true. Like the strike, but I don't know much about the strike. <laughs> we love the strike. He's the coolest thing out there, man. Murdering aside. Oh, there we go. We made it through, Danielle, this very info dumpy section of the fall of Hyperion. Good job. You were worried about not enough plot happening last time, so I decided to put all the plot in this episode. I may or may not remember it in a couple of weeks. I will make a bet on that. <laughs> Oh, I'm so excited to see where this goes. There are some things I can't wait for them to come out. They're going to be great. Yes, this is very exciting. Everything's picking up now. I mean, it only took, what, a book and a half? It's because each book or section of book is just a day in Rachel's life. You mean each like, section of this book? Yeah, seems like it. We've had like three days in her life so far. Right, but she was only four when she got there, right? Five. Five days. Okay, so uh, my point stands. There's been three sections and she's two days old. Well, that's me summarizing it. We're still only in part two of this book. <laughs> there are only three parts of this book and we're in part two. So I'm not sure the math lines up, but I'm doing about a day in Rachel's life. Yeah, that's my pace. <laughs> <laughs> my point stands. Sure. All right, I'll go with it. I am looking forward to humanity's hubris catching up with it. Can't wait. <laughs> Go, humanity. The dehybridifier would be really helpful right about now. It would be. She, should have, those idea, in, yeah. <laughs> she should have those in her reward meetings. <laughs> right. Everyone suddenly realizes, oh no, what have we done? <laughs> we can't underestimate the ousters again. Too late. Well, Danielle, I want you to put odds on in the next section, which is the most likely person to die. You've given me your list, but who do you think top of the list? Uh, 
Great question. People die so unceremoniously in this book. It's hard. I know. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> of the pilgrims, who do you think is going to die first? I and mean, we want to talk about which ones you think are going to die, but who's going to die first? I think Kassad is in a good place to potentially die, but they are trying to like pull him onto their team. That's conflicting. All right. Well, I guess you're going to say Kassad. We'll see if you're right or not in the next part, the follow Hyperion, part four, more Hyperion. They haven't talked about the console in a long time. Maybe he'll just end up dead. <laughs> That's true. He might be relevant at this point. Yeah, exactly. He's done his piece for the book. Well, if you want to get on this betting pool on who's going to die first, you can contact us at bookretorts.com. You can also tweet, Instagram, or Facebook us at bookretorts. And if you want to invest in our dehybridifier, we're still waiting for that crowdsourced funding to clear. You can do so at patreon.com slash bookretorts. Only six payments of nineteen ninety nine. That's really cheap for a dehybridifier, Danielle. <laughs> I know, but it's a, like a pre-model. It's the first run. And if you order now, we'll throw in the pocket dehybridifier at no extra cost. <laughs> Bye, bye, bye. <laughs> We'd be terrible salespeople. <laughs> Good thing that's neither of our jobs. Right? Well, until then, Danielle, I can't wait to see who dies next. Hope you can sleep at night with want for thinking about what's going to happen. I definitely will lose sleep over this. I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. sure <laughs> well, don't lose too much. And until then, bye. Take care, everybody. Are you doing a shave and a haircut? <laughs> okay, there it is. Thank you, Danielle. <laughs> <laughs>